July 19 edition of PFTOT, just six days away from the return of PFT Live. Camps are kind of returning. Rookies are reporting with at least one exception and the NFL season fast approaching. Before the season begins, we'll know what the fate of Deshaun Watson is. And as we now know, and as we've known for a week, Judge Sue L. Robinson has the paperwork in her possession. She's in a position to make a decision. And I continue to believe it's coming next week with the possibility she's clued into the bad news dump mentality of the NFL that'll come on Friday afternoon. And yesterday's big news came from Charles Robinson, who said that the decision has already been made by the NFL Players Association and Deshaun Watson to file a lawsuit if the end result of the NFL's internal disciplinary process is that Watson is suspended for the full season. Now, now look, that's a big if. Because right now there aren't a lot of people who think the NFL will get what it wants, a full season suspension. Remember this, 24 accusers in civil court, 10 accusers in criminal court, in the court of Roger Goodell, as presided over temporarily by Judge Sue L. Robinson, there were four. That's it. Those are the only cases that the NFL brought to Judge Robinson, not 24. At 24, it feels like an avalanche. At four, it feels manageable. It doesn't mean he's going to win. doesn't mean he's going to get no discipline at all. But remember, it's just four. So where does that leave us? I think a full season suspension based upon her decision could be a lot to expect. Now, if she imposes any discipline, the league can appeal to Roger Goodell and Roger Goodell can decide to say, well, we, we part ways here, Judge Robinson. We think that he should be suspended for a full year. But there really isn't a firm belief, a widespread belief right now that it will be a full year. Now, if it is, hey, there'll be litigation. That's fine. He's got the right to go to court. He's got the right to try. As we explained yesterday on PFT, it, the Tom Brady case and the Ezekiel Elliott case point to a conclusion that as long as the NFL files a lawsuit first for what they call a declaratory judgment in federal court in New York City, trying to defend the end result of their in-house decision-making, the NFL is likely to prevail because the federal appeals court that has jurisdiction over any cases filed in the Southern District of New York, in other words, Manhattan, that appeals court already has created precedent that is very helpful to the NFL. And as I've said before, but it bears repeating, judges love it when private parties have their own procedures for resolving their differences, then they don't have to get involved. Judges don't get paid by the case. They don't get paid by the hour. They get paid by the year. Fewer cases means easier workload, means you can focus on other things and not disputes that the parties have already come up with a procedure and a mechanism for resolving. So uphill climb in court, and I don't think we get to that point. Now, we posted earlier today on PFT that based upon reaction of someone who has seen the submissions of the parties, two to eight games is the expected range. We'll see. We'll see. Everybody's all over the place on this. This is what we've heard. I'd be stunned if it's a full year at this point. And remember, one of the best arguments for Deshaun Watson, comparing his punishment to any punishment imposed on owners who may have or did violate the personal conduct policy. And I keep coming back to the fact that 
mums the word from the league and the team on whether or not the Texans are being investigated, whether or not the director of security is being investigated for a personal conduct policy violation based upon the fact that he became aware of an issue with Sean Watson and as Watson has testified, the guy gave him an NDA to use moving forward. The NFL isn't even going to investigate that for a potential personal conduct policy violation. Maybe that helps Deshaun Watson. Maybe there should be a supplemental brief or a letter sent to Judge Robinson saying, hey, you need to ask the NFL whether or not they're going to take a closer look at the Texans. And if they're not, it's another point in Watson's favor. So we'll continue to watch it. We'll continue to monitor it. It continues to be, obviously, an issue of great concern for a variety of reasons. And with football season approaching, the Browns, their fans, they want to know who the quarterback is going to be. And if Watson would be unavailable for an extended period of time, what will they do? There's been some reporting that maybe they would sign a backup to Jacoby Brissett. I think some of that may be posturing so they don't have to overpay for a Jimmy Garoppolo. Wouldn't it be something if the Browns end up giving up a lot more than the Panthers gave up to get Baker Mayfield so that the Browns can get Jimmy Garoppolo, but the Browns would be more desperate than the Panthers were if it came down to Watson out for the year. Again, I don't think it's going to happen, but until it happens, we don't know. And that's why the Browns need to know. The sooner they get a decision on this, the better. And remember, Judge Robinson's decision isn't the end. The appeal possibility lingers with also the potential that we won't have a final answer until some point mid to late August by the time the appeal is heard and resolved by the commissioner or his designee. All right. John Watson's contract continues to hover over the NFL, specifically other quarterbacks looking for contracts. Five years, fully guaranteed, $230 million. If you're Kyler Murray of the Cardinals or Lamar Jackson, the Ravens, you should be saying, I need the same thing. I'm not in any trouble. And I'm a pretty good player, especially Jackson, the 2019 NFL MVP, and Kyler Murray, who has been spectacular at times. Now, it's a tougher assessment and evaluation of Murray because he doesn't really fit the normal mold. He's not very tall. He relies a lot on his ability to run. You take that away, and he seems even smaller than he is. But he and the Cardinals trying to work out a deal, and the Ravens and Jackson trying to do the same. Remember, camps are opening soon, and I think there's a possibility one or both guys could end up with the hold-in. That's become popular since the 2020 CBA, which made it harder made it impossible, frankly, for veteran players to hold out and have their fines later waived by the team. That's been, or had been, a very common practice. Player holds out, trying to get a better contract, gets fined $30,000, $40,000 a day. I think it's up to fifty dollars now. And then when the player shows up, it's all over and done. And don't tell anybody, but we're not going to collect your fines. Now you have to for veteran players, for anyone on their second contract or beyond. So we see hold-ins. We saw T.J. Watt do it last year in Pittsburgh, and it worked. He showed up, didn't practice, got his contract, and tied the single-season sack record. So I could see Murray or Jackson doing that. I've already talked about Murray in that capacity. I could see Jackson doing it as well. Either way, the clock is ticking. And I think with Murray specifically, wrote about this earlier today at PFT, the fact that we haven't heard anything, the fact that there hasn't been any outburst on a negative front or anything that would suggest they were making progress. I think they just decided we're going to keep this quiet. We're going to work together. We're going to try to get this done before July 26th when the veterans report for Arizona Cardinals training camp 
and then we'll see whether or not Murray's there, whether he has a new deal, or whether he ends up being a hold in instead of a hold out where he's present, but he's just not going to practice. He's not going to set foot on a field until he gets his contract. And that makes, see, for non-quarterbacks, the real deadline's week one. For a quarterback, though, you kind of want him to practice. I think the real deadline is start a training camp to get this thing done. We'll see if the Cardinals and Murray can get it done. We'll see if the Ravens and Jackson can get it done. And if they end up with five years fully guaranteed the same way Watson did. See, teams will want to say that the Watson deal was an aberration. And one way to prove it's an aberration is in the subsequent deals to use a different structure where there isn't that five-year full guarantee. And of all the starting quarterbacks in the NFL whose teams shouldn't want five years fully guaranteed, it would be the Cardinals with Murray and the Ravens with Jackson. Because can you really project five years out that this guy definitely is going to continue to be our quarterback? For a lot of quarterbacks, yeah, you can feel pretty confident about that. Murray gets banged up just enough, loses a step or two. All of a sudden, he's not the guy, but you're paying him for five full years. Lamar Jackson, an accumulation of the many hits he's taken, gets to a point where he's just not the same guy, kind of like Cam Newton, all the hits he took. He seemed indestructible. He got to a point where he just wasn't the same guy anymore. So very interesting dynamic and highly scrutinized contracts. We will see if and when Murray and Jackson do their deals. And that Watson contract, a big factor. Will it be an aberration? It will be the start of a trend for NFL contracts. There's another trend that started 11 years ago. And what it did was through the rookie wage scale that the NFL wanted so desperately, the NFL wanted to reduce what players at the top of the draft make. Because the argument was the busts end up taking money out of the system that could go back to the veteran players who are actually earning it. And it makes sense. Now, teams also need to be willing to reward the players who have had three great seasons and have earned the money that was withheld from them. Because that's the other side of the coin of a rookie wage scale. Well, we don't want Ryan Lee for Jamarcus Russell to make all this money that they never earn. Okay, that's fine. That's fair. But what about the guy who does live up to his potential, who does earn it? Are you going to play games with him? Or are you going to give him the contract that he has earned based upon his three years of stellar performance in the NFL? So that continues to be the, the challenge for a lot of teams. Are they going to take care of their guys? But it's easy to get the deal done on the way through the door. And so we see what used to be a post-July 4 ritual with players signing their contracts, those just happen after the draft now. A lot of them are done in May. A lot of them are done by Memorial Day weekend. Forget about post-4th of July. Most of the guys, vast majority, are signed before the three-day weekend at the end of May. However, this training camp opens. We've got one holdout and maybe more to come. Brees Hall, the Jets running back, taken at the top of round two, fourth pick in round two. He doesn't have a contract. He's the only Jets rookie who isn't signed, and the Jets reported on Tuesday, today. The rookies did. The problem is simple. The fifth guy taken, he has three years fully guaranteed. Well, Brees Hall wants three years fully guaranteed. And the other three guys taken in round two in front of Brees Hall, including Packers receiver Christian Watson, going to want three years fully guaranteed. See, that's one thing where there has been room for negotiation. When the rookie wage scale was first put in place, 
the first 20 or so draft picks got four years fully guaranteed. Now all 32, and this is the first year that they pulled it off. All 32 have gotten four years fully guaranteed. So now how far do we take into round two, three years fully guaranteed? And when five has it, well, four, three, two, and one are going to want it. So even though there isn't much to negotiate when it comes to rookie contracts, how much of it is guaranteed and how far down that stack of players who were drafted, the agents can pull either four-year guarantee or three-year guarantee that becomes a negotiating point that could lead to a holdout. And for Brees Hall, hey, look, there's high expectations. He's going to step in and be the top running back and come in and get things done. And if you're not there for training camp, it makes it harder to learn everything you need to learn, especially to be trusted with blitz pickup. With Christian Watson, oh boy, if he doesn't get his deal done, if the Packers don't cave and give him the three years fully guaranteed, you need him to be there. We talked a lot in the offseason about Aaron Rodgers not there to help Watson, who was there, get up to speed. The flip side could be Rodgers will be at training camp and Watson won't be if they don't get this worked out. All right, question time. Yeah, we're going a little shorter today. Sorry. I got a couple of other things I got to do. Trying to get everything done. Trying to go five for five this week as well, though, in the final week of our five-week hiatus as I filibuster my way through locating the tweet that poses today's questions. And here it is. Mild, mild advanced review. Not detailed, but I'm not going into this cold. All right, let's see. Corey Joskowitz, could NFL teams allow players to sign a Bobby Bonilla deal? How would this affect the salary cap? Is it counted against the cap prorated? And then the 1 million a year is paid until complete. Is the 1 million a year against the cap every year? Would a player ever do this? Time value of money, yada, yada, yada. Look, plenty of times payments are deferred. Signing bonus payment. $10 million signing bonus. Get some of it now. Get some of it next year. Get some of it the following year. This Bobby Bonilla deal was kind of a unique thing because he could have had like 5.9 up front and decided to take the $1 million annuity payment every year through 2035, I think, because the Mets decided, we'll just put that 5.9 million in investment and it'll pay the money to Bobby Bonilla. So six of one half dozen the other. The problem is they put their money with Bernie Madoff. So, oops. Now, I don't think we'll ever see something quite so creative as it relates to NFL contracts. But deferred money happens all the time. And it hits the cap when it's earned. When it's paid is a different issue altogether. But if you get, if you get a $10 million signing bonus and you're not going to get all of it for two or three years, it gets put on the books as a $10 million signing bonus earned the day you sign your contract. And it gets processed accordingly on a four-year deal. It gets split up $2.5 million a year for each of the four years. So yes, I guess something like that could happen. But... I, it's, it's such a rare thing. I don't see it happening in any sport ever. And I don't see any baseball team ever rolling the dice on something like that again. PFTP and Posse, should the traditional formula for long-term deals for franchise tag players change, especially with the salary cap set to explode in positions like safety and tight end where it doesn't truly represent the market. And a PFTP and Posse paying attention to the things we've said in the past. The basic formula is you take the franchise tag player's salary due this year, and you take his salary due next year, and you put it together, and you fully guarantee it. And that's how you take 
that franchise tag and turn it into a long-term deal with years three, four, and five on the back end. Could things change? Should things change? You could argue that a bunch of factors come into play here. The Deshaun Watson contract may be a factor. The, the idea that players may be willing to go year to year. That, you know, at some positions, especially quarterback, like, is there really a significant risk that you're not going to want me next year? If we've gotten to the point where I've played for you for four or five years, it's clear that, that I'm getting the job done. Is there really going to be another Kirk Cousins situation where a team wouldn't want to sign a guy and a guy would fall off? I mean, Cousins didn't fall off. He rolled the dice and, and he won. Tagged for two years and then Washington let him walk. I, I think that as more players go year to year, I think that could force one contract at a time. And that's how it happens. One deal at a time. There's a new structure, a new term, a new high watermark, a new way of doing things, and then other players use that with other teams or with the same team to try to follow suit. Just like what happened with the Steelers last year. The Steelers, one of the only three teams as of a year ago, Bengals, Packers, Steelers, that refused to fully guarantee money beyond the first year of a veteran non-quarterback contract. Well, they tore that practice up with T.J. Watt, and now they did it again with Minka Fitzpatrick, and now it's gone. That's how it happens. One deal at a time. So to answer the question, it all is something that occur or could occur one deal at a time. So, yeah, I mean, we always have to be looking for change circumstances. And the Watson contract changes circumstances. The cap changes circumstances. The way that the franchise tag is calculated and how it's lagging behind the market value, that changes circumstances too. And it, it comes down to a good agent persuading a team to do things differently. Just like the Texans were persuaded to fully guarantee three years on a four-year second-round draft picks contract. That becomes the domino that causes more contracts to follow suit. That's how it happens. All right. One more from PFTPM Posse. If the Browns gave Deshaun Watson a fully guaranteed $230 million contract and traded a boatload of picks, how much would he or another true franchise quarterback get on the open market? And, you know, that's a great point because, look, the Browns gave Watson this tremendous deal and gave up a bunch of draft picks to get him. It wasn't just Deshaun Watson's available and he goes to the highest bidder. Now, it's simulated, simulated open market because they brought four teams to the table. And they cast the Browns aside and the Browns decided we got to get this guy. So we got to get his attention. How about five years, 230 million fully guaranteed. But I think that if a truly unrestricted quarterback who is a true franchise guy, I mean, top of the stack, top five, Hey, he's a top five. He's a top five. You're going to have 10 top five. If you try to do top 10, Hey, he's top 10. He's top 10. You're going to have 20 true top five, true top five. And I'm not going to name names because I'm going to leave someone out. True top five talent becomes an unrestricted free agent, which will never happen. It would, it would be like in today's market, probably get 55 million a year, maybe 60 million a year. True franchise quarterback, year in and year out, who has proven it time and again. Mahomes, if all of a sudden he's available on the open market. And, and the term that I've been advocating for years, percentage of the salary cap. So you're protected against your deal becoming obsolete 
by the cap going up and up and up. You have a minimum salary, so you're protected against the cap going down, but then you have a kicker that is tied to a percentage of the cap. That is permitted under the CBA, but the teams have refused to do it. A little bit of collusion going on, a little bit, a little bit of collusion. Not that anybody's going to do anything about it, but just like the Browns broke ranks with five years fully guaranteed, somebody else would have to break ranks for a percentage of the cap, and it would take the kind of guy like the equivalent of Reggie White as a quarterback. Remember Reggie White back in 93, for those of you who were alive then? The first highly pursued free agent. He was able to duck the franchise tag in Philadelphia because he was one of the named plaintiffs in the lawsuit that sparked the new system. So he goes to the market. All these teams want him. You get a quarterback who's in that kind of demand. Yeah, it would be a ridiculous amount of money and it would all be guaranteed. And... I'd like to think there would be a percentage of the salary cap in play as well to protect against the cap going up and that contract being stale. Neil watches PFT with the news that Leonard Fournette showed up to camp weighing 30 pounds over his listed weight. Do you know of any contract provisions that would void any of his guarantees? Tom Coughlin used to write weigh-ins into contracts to avoid these situations. Are those still common? It can be negotiated. And I can't remember who it was. I think it was Trent Brown. He's got specific weight incentives and clauses and bonuses in his contract with the Patriots, all aimed at keeping him in an ideal range. And, and that can be negotiated into a contract. And you can be fine for being over whatever weight you're supposed to be. I don't know that it voids any guarantees. It all comes down to how the contract is written. And I'm not aware of anything with Fournette. He's just at risk of you know, losing his starting job and or being cut if he doesn't get himself in shape. And I know people say that's what training camp is for. Guys stay in shape all year round now. This isn't like the 70s where guy go, goes and works another job in the off season and doesn't really exercise and is smoking cigarettes and eating bacon and pork rinds and, you know, needs to get in shape. When they had six preseason games and 14 regular season games, guys needed that. Nowadays, guys are in shape all the time. So it is a little jarring to see the report that Leonard Fournette was 260 and he's going to have to literally work his ass off, literally, when training camp opens to get himself in shape. Now, people said that there is some Instagram evidence that he's already doing that on his own. And, you know, look at, hey, it's a never-ending fight. For anybody who ever weighed more than they should, and I resemble that remark, trust me. It is a constant fight to stay in an ideal weight range. And sometimes for one or more reasons, you fall off the horse. If food only didn't taste so damn good, it would be a hell of a lot easier. All right. Um, this is an interesting question. I gotta be careful what I say here. NFL leads. Have you ever been approached to work for the NFL or an NFL team if you were offered a GM position for that once-in-a-lifetime opportunity? Would you give it a go? Clearly, you can handle the criticism associated with the job. Um, the NFL would, would never offer me a job. The league office would never, ever. But some would say maybe they should. You know, I'm the guy you buy, not the guy you kill. Maybe that would be the argument. There, there was at one point, five years or so ago, just kind of a loose conversation, but I, I'm just, I'm not interested in giving up what I have. I'm not interested in signing on to this reality. And it wouldn't have been a GM job. 
but I'm not interested in signing on to a reality where any given year could be your last year. And then you get thrown back into the blender and you got to go find another job or you don't. What I have now is immune to wins and losses. What I have now will last as long as I'm alive and or want to keep doing it. So I'm not giving up what I have now ever. And as much as I would love to win a Super Bowl ring in some capacity with any team in position to win one, I'd rather do what I'm doing now and just buy a Super Bowl ring one of these days on eBay or wherever. Uh, Neil watches PFT. Do you ever think we'll see a player sit out the entire year to avoid playing on the franchise tag like Le'Veon Bell did? Do you think there will be players who dress for the minimum games as set by the Joey Galloway precedent? Look, I, could, I think we could see Jesse Bates this year show up for the minimum number of games. That's his only real path if he says he doesn't intend to play under the tag. And the Le'Veon Bell thing, a lot of people like to drag Le'Veon Bell for what he did. A lot of people took some perverse glee in the fact that he sat out all year and all oh, his career didn't work out after that. Well, you know what? The guarantees that he got from the Jets after sitting out the full year. I remember doing the math at the time he signed that contract, comparing it to what he gave up and what he would have gotten if he would played that year. And we don't know what he would have gotten if he had played a whole year under his second tag with the Steelers. Maybe he wouldn't have gotten very much. Maybe people would have realized based on that second franchise tag year that he wasn't worth the contract that the Jets gave him. But I think a quarterback could do it because a quarterback could take confidence in the fact that if I sit out a full year, I'm still going to be in demand. As evidenced by Deshaun Watson sitting out a full year for different reasons entirely, but still getting five years, 230 million, fully guaranteed. So the way it works is that second tag is the time to do it. You sit out the whole year, and then the next year it counts as third tag even if you didn't play under the second tag and third tag is the one that teams just won't apply. And then you become a free agent. So someone could do that at some point, sit out the entirety of the second year of the franchise tag. And I think a quarterback would be the one to consider doing it. Uh, all right. I should probably wrap this up. We have a request from Will Shamim uh, for a preseason PFT Chris Sims Unbuttoned Joint Mega Picks podcast, where we talk about favorite picks or interesting bets for the season win totals, division odds, player props, et cetera. Good primer for the season. I have passed that along to the powers that be. And unless they are just humoring me, that may be something that we ultimately do. So great suggestion. Um, Paul Silva, let's wrap on this one. When looking at the failure of the Kirk Cousins, Mike Zimmer relationship, people always seem to blame Zimmer. Why doesn't Kirk get any of the blame? He has two failed head coaching relationships, Mike Zimmer and Jay Gruden. Kirk gets plenty of blame. I've blamed him plenty the last four years. Kirk is a guy who can get it done when everything is set up for him just perfectly. Any adversity during a play, and he can't turn it into chicken salad the best quarterbacks in today's nfl are the ones who but for tom brady can take that play that goes to hell and on the fly craft a second play that turns a bad situation into a good one now what brady does and this is what i think cousins needs to aspire to do i think this is cousin's ceiling 
the play that's called, get to the point where you make your reads pre-snap and you know where the open guy is going to be. And you get the ball to him before the walls close in. But if the walls close in, you find a way to bail out, duck and cover, live to play another day. That's what Brady has done in his 40s to avoid injury. He didn't want to get hit by guys literally half his age and injured. The more he gets hit, the more he's going to get injured, the more likely he's going to be done. That's what Cousins needs to do. The Brady approach, not the Mahomes approach, where, oh, crap, everything's falling apart. I'm going to run around until somebody's wide open. And it's just that inherent artistry. Josh Allen fits into that category. Aaron Rodgers can make that happen. What Cousins needs to do, and this is why he's been criticized, when the walls close in, he goes deer in the headlights. He just does. He doesn't know what to do. Maybe with Kevin O'Connell, maybe with a better head coach than what he's had the past four years in Minnesota because the guy's not a defensive coach. Maybe with someone who's more interested in propping him up instead of tearing him down. You know, Zimmer's got that Parcells approach. And I think the Jimmy Johnson approach is much better. The Jimmy Johnson approach is you need to figure out each guy what makes each guy tick and what is each guy going to react to some guys react better to negative reinforcement some guys only react well to positive reinforcement bill parcells just chewed out everyone that cantankerous curmudgeonly old school head coach that doesn't work anymore i'm not sure it ever did it doesn't work anymore and kirk cousins may not be a guy who gets to his maximum level getting his ass chewed all the time by mike zimmer so maybe Kevin O'Connell comes in, tries to prop him up, put him in situations where the walls aren't closing in and try to coax him to the point where in those occasions where things aren't working, he just finds a way to get rid of the ball and not throw it into the hands of an opposing player. Find a way to get rid of the ball and the play, move on to the next one and trust the next one will work. Hopefully the next one of these will work better than this one. Although, I don't know, this one, I don't know. Was it that bad? I, I don't know. I do no reflection. I just move on to the next thing. And that's what I'm going to do today. Got a lot to do today. Got to wrap this up. I'm going to move on to my next thing. Here's all the best to you as you move on to your next thing. And the next big thing for PFT is the return of PFT Live. Monday, July 25. Until then, I'm going to do my best this week. I'm two for two. Can you get the three for three? Four for four? Five for five? We'll find out Wednesday whether I keep the streak alive. Have a great day. Thanks, as always, for some of your time. See you soon.